Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Nine. Twelve. Ten. Twenty-eight. Two. Twenty-three. This is Deep State Radio, coming to you direct from our super-secret studio in the third sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK in Washington, D.C., and from other undisclosed locations across America and around the world. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Deep State Radio. This is David Rothkopf, and I am coming to you from the special Deep State offices in Hong Kong. Joining us also on this uh, podcast are our old friend Kim Gaddis, uh, who is a fellow at the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace, based in Beirut, Lebanon, where she is working on a book. Coming to us uh, from, are you in New Haven, Ona? Or are you? Yes, in, I'm in New Haven, Connecticut. Coming from beautiful New Haven, Connecticut, is Ona Hathaway, who's a professor of law at Yale Law School. Um, we have our own regular professor of law, actually associate dean at the Georgetown School of Law, Rosa Brooks, and of the Lawfare blog. You can get the sense the law may be a theme of this episode, <laughs> Susan Hennessy. Um, what I want to do is I want to devote sort of a bit of this discussion at the front end to uh, Syria, and then I'd like to move to legal issues, and then I'd like to see if I can tie all that together. Um, but, uh, Kim, you are in Beirut. You've been watching with interest local coverage of what happened in Syria. And I'm wondering what your take is right now. The take, whether it's mine or the Lebanese or the Syrians and much of the region is, oh, this was just more of the same. And more of the same meaning similar to the strike that President Trump ordered last year around the same time. So a one-off that's just meant to send a signal perhaps to President Can we call this Assad an anniversary his- strike? An anniversary strike. There you go. Something, uh, something new that leaders around the world can add to uh, to their box of uh, Trump tools. Yeah, I, bet, I, bet, I bet it's more likely that Trump remembered this anniversary than he remembered his anniversary with Melania. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, but just to, to sort of put it in, in context, I mean, not, not only did people say, well, this is just more of the same, they weren't expecting very much anyway. So they felt that it was more of the same, just a one-off, something that would make that would make President Trump feel good to make him feel that, you know, he'd done something. But more of the same from, you know, what we've seen over the last seven years, frankly, from an American administration, uh, you know, more uh, more firepower than what we saw under the Obama administration, because the Obama administration did not conduct any strikes against President Assad. But for those who would like to see President Assad gone and would certainly like to see an end to the suffering of Syrian civilians, there's a sense that all of this is is useless and actually 
further damaging American credibility and making the situation on the ground worse. Because the signal that it sends and that it sent last year as well and that President Obama sent in 2013 when he didn't um, end up uh, launching strikes despite the red line being crossed is that it seems that it's fine for Syrian civilians to die by any means except chemical weapons. And when it is chemical weapons, there's just a slight slap on the wrist. But that's really the feeling that people have here, that it's fine for Syrian civilians to die by barrel bombs, by sniper fire, by, um, you know, torture. Any means is fine. Um, but occasionally there'll be a slap on the wrist of of regional leaders. And then, of course, you have, you know, the other side, those who support President Assad, those who are in the camp of the Iranians and the Russians who, you know, say that uh, this proved that Assad, President Assad can survive everything. Uh, yes, and I suspect President Assad will outsurvive President Trump uh, for any number of reasons. Um, but and in fact, David, what what the what the Syrian presidency uh, did on the morning after at nine, just after nine a.m., is their Twitter account put out a video allegedly showing President Assad showing up to work at the presidential palace carrying his briefcase. Now, I don't want to cast too much doubt about whether it was really him or not and what it means if it's not him in the video. It was a very blurry video. You can actually make out um, who, who it really was. It kind of looked like him, but you couldn't see his face. And the shadows were all wrong in the background. It looked more like something that had been shot at um, at midday rather than, than early morning. But there's definitely a lot of effort being put into showing that the, the resistance against the imperial West can sustain um, you know, any strike. Well, you know, normally that kind of thing would be a source of, uh, oh, I don't know, derision in Washington because it was would be fake, right? But uh, Rosa, you, you 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 may have seen that the White House put out a picture of President Trump deliberating on this, uh, mm -hmm. in which Vice President Pence was sitting at his side, you know, um, except Allegedly. that Vice President Pence was in Peru at the time, and so the picture that the White House put out was a complete fake. <laughs> Uh, that was the uh, that was the life size mannequin of Vice President Trump that is um, usually put next to uh, uh, Vice President Pence is usually put next to Trump to sort of comfort him and give him the feeling of having a, a friend. I've got bad maybe news it was for a hologram. You. I, I, I got bad <laughs> news for you, Rosa. Pence actually is a life size mannequin. Oh shit! There is there is no real human Mike Pence. Um, watch him up close sometime, maybe on an HDTV. Um, David, you're, you're, breaking me, you're breaking my heart. What are we going to do if, if, if something happens to President Trump, like, God forbid, he gets impeached? I was hoping that we would have something other than a mannequin. You're telling me well, now? Well, I don't know. At this point, I think a mannequin would win by a fairly substantial majority. <laughs> um, now, now having, having said that, Ona, you know, let's es establish for a moment that what the strikes did was probably pretty minimal. But there is still a question of whether they were legal. And I know that this is something you've given some thought to, and it's worth discussing, perhaps particularly because they didn't really have that much effect. Yeah, well, they may not have had much effect on the ground in Syria, but they've done a lot of damage mm -hmm. to domestic and international law. Um, so on the domestic side, I mean, there's no 
plausible argument that uh, the president had the authority to undertake these strikes without going to Congress. Um, Paul Ryan floated the idea that maybe this is authorized under the 2001 Authorization for Use of Military Force, uh, which, of course, is the law passed by Congress uh, shortly after 9-11 to allow a response uh, to those who planned and carried out the 9-11 attacks, um, which is kind of on its face an absurd claim. Um, the other possibility they might be relying on that they've not issued any opinion on this is they might be relying on Article 2 authority alone, and that seems to be the case. Um, but that's, that is a pretty extraordinary stretch. Um, there's no claim here that there's any self-defense justification. So really the claim would have to be, you know, if it's in our national interest, we can uh, choose to, the president can choose to act unilaterally under his Article II authority. And that's a pretty extraordinary position to take. So there's been just immense damage on the domestic law side and the constraints in the president's ability to use force. And then on the international law side, um, we've really done major damage uh, to what remains of the limits, international legal limits, on use of military force by states. Um, Again, the U.S. hasn't explained itself, um, but uh, hasn't even bothered to try and explain why there might be some argument that this is legal under international law. Um, And most observers, um, including myself, think that this is clearly in violation of international law. There's no self-defense justification. Again, that would be a permissible reason, but there's not really any plausible argument here that this is the self-defense action. There's no authorization from the Security Council. Um, and obviously, Assad hasn't consented to the strikes by the U.S. Uh, since we're striking him and his forces. So there's no legal justification either on the domestic or the international law side. And so what we're seeing here is a real corrosion of legal limits on the use of force. And that's very dangerous, I think. Well, Rosa, Remember when you were part of the Obama administration? Dimly, very dimly. Dimly remember that. Um, well, back then, in, in I believe August of 2013, is that what it was? Uh, I, I, well, I may not have the year right, but, but, but back then, right at the moment, the President Obama was going to take action because the red line was crossed. He didn't have a good until, excuse either. Up until up until moments before he decided that he wanted to go to Congress on it, he wasn't going to go to Congress That's on it. That's absolutely right. No, I, I mean, the only way in which I would quibble with, with Ona's comments um, uh, is to note that we've had several presidents in a row playing fast and loose with their mm-hmm. Article II authority and with international law. Uh, and that, in that sense, President Trump has uh, certainly better company than he is usually surrounded by when it when it comes to presidents, at least. Um, I mean, o- Ona is absolutely correct that that a straightforward reading of the law, both domestic, both domestic and international law, uh, it's really hard to make an argument for the legality of these strikes. Um, um, that said. Uh, President Obama was prepared to act, or at least he said he was prepared to act under essentially the same circumstances as as Trump, uh, e.g. until he changed his mind, he was prepared to act without going to Congress first. 
when it came to other military interventions undertaken by the Obama administration, including um, a much larger scale military intervention in Libya with, with arguably much greater humanitarian justification, uh, President Obama did not seek congressional authorization and, and made a bunch of extremely convoluted legal arguments uh, about the reasons he, he didn't have to, arguing that the war powers resolution uh, was not applicable because this wasn't putting U.S. troops into combat. We were just putting airplanes over their airspace and drones and so on and so forth. So it didn't really count for war, war powers resolution purposes. Uh, you know, Bill Clinton didn't seek congressional authorization for his strike uh, uh, inside of Sudan against al-Qaeda targets, which strike which, which missed, as we subsequently discovered. George W. Bush um, did seek congressional authorization for the invasion of Iraq, but uh, it was a pretty blatant violation of international law. So we've had, we've had four presidents in a row who have really, in various ways, been willing to thumb their nose at the legal framework. And we have seen uh, Congress uh, throughout several decades now really retreating from their constitutional role uh, as, as guardians of that power. So does that make it okay? No, I don't think it makes it okay. I think that the, the, it in fact uh, makes the issues that Ona raises even more serious. Um, but I would say that there is, there is practical precedent. And I mean, the reason, the reason I think that that's, that doesn't make me feel like, oh, all right then, if everybody's doing it, why not? You know, I think that the the concern that Ona raises is is a, a, an enormous one, which is that we've seen overall in this country a, a steady increase in executive power, uh, and that law is inconvenient. It's a pain in the ass uh, uh, to follow it, but it's there for a reason. It's there to prevent unconstrained uses of power. It's there to be a little bit inconvenient and force people to slow down and ensure that they've thought things through and have the support that they need. And when you get successive administrations flouting the legal regime that obviously the U.S. supposedly holds near and dear, um, you know, you create an environment in which future administrations will feel even more unconstrained. And that's actually pretty scary. So I mean, I one of the things most, most of that, just real quickly, just want to jump in and respond to some of what Rosa said. I mean, I agree. I agree with most of what um, Rosa says there. I mean, but what's what's interesting here is that Trump is is perhaps taking those previous actions to their logical conclusion, but he is really taking it a step further. So think about Libya. There, yes, Obama um, acted in um, violation of the War Powers Resolution um, and did didn't see congressional authorization, but he had Security Council authorization. So um, it was a serious stretch, if not a breaking of domestic law, but it was consistent under international law. In Iraq, it was a flip, right? So you had the 2002 authorization for use of military force from Congress, um, but and they had at least an argument under international law, although an argument that most think um, wasn't a good one, um, but at least they were bothering to make an argument um, about why it was consistent with international law. Here, there's, there's just not even a, an attempt um, so far to make an argument under either domestic or international law. So what's really striking about this is not that you can't look back and see kind of precedents on each side um, and kind of see where they might be kind of 
getting the sense that they're, they can kind of push the limits. But what's so striking here is just that they've kind of given up. Um, they haven't even tried to make an argument about, about why this is legal under either domestic or international law. And, um, and it's illegal under both. I mean, yes, Obama thought about going forward in 2013, but what's really interesting there is he, he did pull back. And while we don't know for sure why it was that he ultimately decided not to act in uh, August 2013, um, I, I think that there's a good chance that part of the reason was that he understood he was stretching the law. He would have been stretching the law both under domestic and international law. Um, and so that's why I think he figured if he was going to go in violation of international law, he might as well have Congress behind him um, yeah, and then well, Congress look, wouldn't give it to him. Yeah, I mean, that's what a lot of Obama administration people are saying right now. But the it's it's it overlooks the fact that the president instructed the secretary of state to go out that afternoon mm. and explain why we were going to attack them. Uh, and everybody was moving in the direction and planes were in the air. And then he changed his mind. So, yeah, yeah, know, no, he did. Yeah. I mean, we don't know. I mean, it would be really interesting to understand why it was. I, mean, I think that part of the, you know, I wrote an op-ed at the time saying I thought it was illegal under international law in New York Times. Um, and, you know, many people were criticizing the what appeared to be a um, impending strike as a violation of domestic and international law. And he did back off. And now we just don't know exactly why. But um, but, you know, as has been pointed, as, as Rosa rightly pointed out, he, he did overstep the war powers resolution in Libya. So it's not like he wasn't willing to take some of these actions. It's just he was much more cautious um, and not willing to to kind of go to the full extreme that Trump is doing here. I'm just one thing I'm struck by listening to you guys talk about this is, you know, to the extent that sort of the personality of Trump has really sort of pulled the curtain on the the expanding scope of of executive power. Um, the fact that this conversation is almost identical to prior ones, right? You would think that uh, that this would be the moment, this would be the person that you would sort of realize the true danger of allowing this sort of slow creep of uh, of authority shifting. And so it is remarkable that you know, for all the rhetoric about, oh, you know, Trump with his hands on the nuclear button, whenever he does act, you know, he, he does sort of exercise these power, the, the conversation really is largely the same as we've seen in the past. I just want to say one thing, looking at it from, from the region, um, if I may. I, I think the discussion about international law and, um, you know, use of force and the legal limits on international use of force, all of that is very, very important. And I know we'll talk a little bit more about rule of law in general later in the program. But looking at it from the region, when you talk to, um, you know, people in, in Beirut or across the region, what they're really talking about is... American credibility being completely undermined by everything that the U.S. has done or not done over the last seven years when it comes to Syria. And that is something that Americans should also be very uh, concerned about. And it goes probably hand in hand with the discussion about um, use of force and in international law. I mean, whether it's America as an ally, whether it's America as a as a moral leader, whether it's uh, you know credibility of U.S. deterrence, all of that has been completely undermined by how the United States has approached um, the conflict in Syria. Whether it's the Obama administration or whether now it's the Trump administration, and that has ramifications and a ripple effect around the world because. 
you know, the consequences are that Russia behaves then in a certain way and Iran behaves in a certain way. And that goes back to how do you uphold a system of laws and international laws around um, the world and a system that the United States was, you know, a big part in building up after World War II. Well, and also, by the way, a system of international law that essentially permits nation states to kill their own citizens with a degree of impunity, uh, particularly if they have um, the support of a permanent member of the Security Council who has the veto. And, and so what we have discovered in the wake of World War II and the atrocities that we saw in World War II is an international system that is uniquely <clears throat> incapable of rising to the challenges of mass slaughter and genocide over and over and over again, whether it's Cambodia or it's uh, Rwanda or it's the Rohingya or it's Syria, um, for, for, for a whole host of reasons. Uh, the system of international law is broken. But I think that there is another dimension of this, and I just want to talk about it for a minute or two and maybe get a take from uh, uh, each of you, a very brief take. Um, but let me start with you, Susan. Um, I, Rosa touched upon something that I thought was quite interesting and hasn't really come up much in this debate, uh, and that is that the War Powers Act was written at a time when war was something different. And it is now increasingly possible for the United States to strike and devastate countries without any troops being involved at all, um, whether it's drones and someday swarms of drones and swarms of smart drones, or it's cyber. Um, it's increasingly possible for presidents to do a huge amount of damage um, and, and without sort of conventionally doing what that act was written to prevent, which was a prim primarily assigning U.S. forces overseas without congressional approval. So it seems like not only is the international system not up to this, but the current U.S. system of law is not up to the way, you know, military action looks today. Let me start with you, Susan, and then Rosa. Yeah, I mean, I think we've always been sort of operating under this theoretical assumption that there would be some moment in which uh, we would structurally realign, right? So people had sort of, you know, from the 1970s, the, the, the imperial presidency, the notion of this of this creep, but then surely something was going to happen and Congress was going to assert itself and we were going to sort of, the pendulum was going to swing back. You know, I, I think what we are seeing a little bit more dramatically now, in part because of the the lack of sort of process or, or respect for even um, pretending like you're, you're sort of uh, uh, engaging in, in going to Congress or, or uh, articulating your legal rationales, I think what we're seeing is, is you know, there there is something wrong structurally here um, and that people are allowed to essentially, you know, violate the Constitution, violate, uh, 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 you know, the, the way these things are supposed to operate. And and we probably aren't going to reach that sort of that, that pendulum moment as a political matter. Congress isn't just going to wake up and say, hey, you know, I personally, as, as part of my obligation to my, my own institution, the 
legislative branch or because all of a sudden my constituents really, really care about sort of the adherence to the War Powers Act. I am going to now care about this thing. You know, we, we continue to see, you know, a few sort of uh, not fringe senators, but but people sort of at the margins, you know, John McCain, Tim Kaine, uh, you know, those types of people uh, talking about this a lot. Uh, that is something that I think we're going to have to think about. All right. Uh, now that this hypothesis has sort of effectively been proven wrong, we can assume that the pendulum isn't suddenly going to swing back into, you know, an assertive and, and resurgent uh, uh, Congress. You know, what does that mean? What does that mean going forward? And, and how does that interact with, you know, a, a really rapidly changing sort of uh, a foreign policy and foreign policy in uh, in conflict context? Um, I don't have any answers, but but I do think it's, it's yet another area in which we are on a little bit of a scary precipice with a particularly troublesome person kind of at the helm. Okay, I, because we do want to switch gears here for a second. Maybe Rosa, if you have a, a minute on this, or Ona, you have a minute on it. I'd like to just fill, finish out this topic and move on to another one. I do want to say one quick thing about your point about the system of international law is broken. Um, I mean, I think that that uh, you know you point to a really important point, which is that um, there's something of an irony here, which is that international law prohibits the enforcement of international law. Um, so the the international law system on use of force prohibits individual states from choosing uh, to go to war to enforce things like the Chemical Weapons Convention or human rights instruments. And there's kind of this deep irony in that. Um, that was not coincidental, um, as I wrote about in a book that um, recently uh, came out, the internationalists, you know, when they were creating the system, their central preoccupation was to prevent a war between the great powers. Um, they really were centrally concerned with avoiding um, having states go to war with each other, and in particular, having the members of the P5 going to war with each other, and specifically um, having the Soviets and the U.S. go to war with each other. Um, and the system has worked pretty well at avoiding direct confrontation between these states. Now, what we're seeing with the erosion that's going on in Syria right now is um, in some ways, the wisdom of that system, because um, there has been at the very least a war of words between Trump um, and various Russian representatives about the possibility of direct confrontation between the two. Um, and the whole idea of the, of the charter system was um, you wouldn't allow use of force unless the five all were in agreement precisely because um, you didn't want them on opposite sides of a shooting war. Um, and that has worked. Um, but what that has meant is that states can't unilaterally choose to go in to enforce the other rules of the system. And, and it was constructed that way, I think, in part because they thought it was more important to avoid a World War III than it was to enforce these other rules. Um, but it does lead us to what feels like sometimes a kind of paralysis that is extraordinarily frustrating. But it's, it, it's not necessarily the system not working. It's actually working in many ways precisely the way it was meant to work. Um, just we may not always well, like the way it was meant to work. Well, well, right. Or it may have been meant to work in a way that was still considered. Um, David, I, I know you want to, to shift course, but the one thing that we haven't talked about with regard to Syria uh, is well was were these strikes a good idea overall or not from a strategic perspective? Uh, I'm not sure you can put aside the legal issues, but but to the extent that one can bracket them, uh, you know what's is this? Did Trump make the right decision, et cetera? And I know that you have argued uh, that this these strikes were the right decision. 
um, I, I suspect that at least a few of us on this call would, would disagree. And, and maybe we should talk about that for a couple of minutes before we shift topics. Well, we can, yeah, we can talk about it. I, I, but I, what I have argued is mm. that if the strikes had any deterrent effect at all on Assad, and there was any likelihood that they might a reduce the you know the possibility of another such um, chemical weapons attack, and um, and they were somewhat international in their in 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 their structure that it was, you know, probably not going to be effective because it, there was no strategy around it. And it was probably not going to be effective because um, there would be no follow through to it, but that it was a small net positive, uh, so limited in its action and potential secondary effects, um, probably a risk worth taking. Um, having said that, you know, I, my, my, my broader sense is we need to have a strategy for the broader Middle East. We need to have a strategy for Syria. We need to have an international plan. We need to have more aggressive diplomacy. We need to do things like let refugees into the country. We need to do things like work with other nations on humanitarian responses. We need to use another element of international law, which is uh, international criminal court. We need to convict Assad of crimes against humanity and make sure that it's very clear to him that he will never go anyplace else in the world without ending up in the slammer. Uh, we need to use all the tools available to us. We are doing none of those things uh, by this. And so I think, while I think it's a small net positive, uh, I think the, the larger portion of the critique ought to be about what we're not doing than about this. David, I think that um, if if I were, and I'm not, but if I were uh, sitting in Washington as a foreign policy uh, strategist or someone from the administration, I would actually look at these strikes as detrimental to U.S. standing in, in the region and long-term credibility, as I just pointed out. I think that as long as American strikes, whether you know, one supports them or not, whether they're legal or not. But as long as they're not part of a strategy, uh, and we can discuss the strategy, and it seems to be shrinking by the day if you compare what, um, you know, former Secretary of State Tillerson said in January and what uh, um, ambassador, U.S. Ambassador to the U.N. Nikki Haley just said uh, about American strategy, that strategy seems to be, to be shrinking and nothing is being done to actually implement it. But as long as strikes like that are, A, not part of a wider strategy, forget about the whole Middle East, let's just have a strategy for Syria, and B, if they're constantly being telegraphed in advance to the Russians and to, to the Syrians, then the net effect, I think, is negative for the U.S. from an American uh, perspective, because as I said, it undermines U.S. credibility and it undermines, you know, uh, American deterrence. Um, what, just look, again, I'm I'm sorry, but just just one or two more minutes on this. I know because some of you have some hard stops here, but Rose, the reason you brought that up was presumably to argue with me. So go ahead. <laughs> well, no, I I I bring it up not 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 just to argue with you and and send you fleeing uh, in in ignominious defeat, um, although that <laughs> is occasionally entertaining. But 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 I think it's it's a and, uh, and it always it, happens that way. <laughs> indeed. Um, uh, no, I think it's I think it's a genuine issue, right? So so thinking back, uh, 
several presidents ago, back to the late 1990s when the Clinton administration uh, intervened in Kosovo with through through NATO, but it was clearly a U.S.-led military effort uh, to stop what what the administration believed was uh, impending ethnic cleansing in Kosovo. Uh, did so in those circumstances uh, similarly without uh, UN authorization of any sort, and there was really no no plausible consent or self defense argument that could be made to explain away the absence of Security Council authorization. Um, and then what, what happened was that the Security Council sort of subsequently blessed it, uh, and everyone, not everyone, everyone, but, but many international law scholars as well as uh, political leaders said, yeah, you know, it's legality. It was kind of extra legal. We're not going to say it was illegal, but we're going to say extra legal, which is a nice word that you use when you don't want to say it was illegal, but it kind of was. But on the other hand, um, you know, the, the humanitarian imperative was so great that this was justifiable and see it worked, right, was the other important clincher there was was the argument that it really did work uh, to do it, it accomplished what it was supposed to accomplish. And since then, there, there's been a, a live debate about are there circumstances, and if so, what are they, in which the uh, urgency, the moral urgency um, of a situation sort of outweighs all the uh, legal arguments against acting? Mm-hmm. And I think that the, you know, the best argument, the argument that, in fact, uh, uh, John Kerry did not make and President Obama did not make back in 2013, but that the Brits, our partners, did make explicitly about the potentially using force in the, in following the prior use of chemical weapons by the Assad regime was essentially just such a humanitarian intervention argument, um, saying that that trumped the need to get Security Council authorization. Um, it, you know, and and so, so so I do think it's a it's a really important question because because I mean the the argument Ona makes, which I think is is a very powerful one, is that. Um, you know, it's a slippery slope that if everybody starts saying, well, yeah, but this circumstance is so great that we're going to kind of take the law into our own hands, that the risk not only that everybody starts using that argument and there's there's no referee anymore, but that the risk of great power military conflict goes up and that that's, that's too dangerous, it's not worth it. Um, the counter argument, obviously, is that the UN Security Council system is archaic. It was structured to reward the victors in World War II. It has very little to do with with the norms that have emerged in the decades since then. And you know that 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 maybe we are actually sacrificing uh, in important interests, including the interests of of civilians. Uh, I, I don't think you can make this particular case in Syria for the reasons that Kim and others have already mentioned, but but that at least in a hypothetical sense that there ought to be this exception. And and we're not going to resolve that right now, but I think it's it's a you know it's going to remain a, a, a huge challenge because uh, while it is a, a terrible challenge to the legitimacy of international law when great powers thumb their nose at it, it's also a challenge to the legitimacy of the international order when. You do have situations where uh, there is inaction because you can't get Security Council blessing, and as a result, hundreds of thousands of people die. Right. And in this case, well over half a million people, seven million people dislocated. Um, and, you know, one of the great humanitarian crises of, of, of recent history. 
Um, and surely we can talk about an international. I mean, surely, surely we 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 have to be uh, a little chastened and just trying to suggest that there's an international system of of law and justice that doesn't have any effective mechanism for dealing with situations like this. And and we have one going on like it with the Rohingya right now. And I wouldn't be surprised if too long from now we say we have something like that going on. Uh, in Venezuela, certainly it's, there are things like that going on in places in Africa. In any event, you know, one of the reasons that um, this uh, 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 action was alleged to have taken by some of the most uh, v- vocal Trump critics was a kind of a wag the dog, distract um, from uh, all the legal problems that the president is having. Um, and and I and because we try to stay timely, we'd be remiss in not dis- discussing that. And 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 right now, the president's legal problems sort of have, um, you know, there are a couple of big headlines that have really been dominant. One having to do with the the release of James Comey's book and interviews with James Comey, in which he has been extremely uh, critical of the president and has suggested that the president obstructed justice and has suggested the president was morally unfit for the office. And then simultaneously, um, uh, a series of actions surrounding uh, the president's conciliary, um, Michael Cohen, which led to an FBI raid on his offices and will lead later today to a hearing about whether or not the fruits of that raid can remain uh, in the hands of of the prosecutors so that they can uh, see what they can make of it. And, and I, let me just turn at this point to you, Susan, to provide kind of your take um, on, on, on both of those, and then we'll open it up again. Yeah, I mean, my my high level take is it's super, super duper bad news for the president. I mean, anytime your lawyer is, uh, you know, the subject of an FBI raid, uh, you're not in a great position. And so I do think that, um, you know, as my colleague Ben Wittes wrote uh, uh, immediately after this, these headlines broke, um, this is sort of a turning point uh, in the, you know, the investigations into Trump, whether or not this is uh, directly a Mueller investigation or sort of the, the blooming investigation. Investigations, uh, so it's, it's a turning point in sort of the investigative steps that we're seeing, and it's also a turning point in terms of the level of danger that we're about to see a real confrontation here, either through firing uh, Mueller or Rod Rosenstein, uh, you know, or, or some sort of action that really is going to demand uh, a strong congressional response. And uh, what might happen if that response doesn't come? Um, so, sort of getting into some of the, you know, the immediate legal questions. Uh, you know, Trump has said, you know, this is the death of attorney-client privilege. You know, no, it's not the death of attorney-client privilege. Uh, you know whether or not this falls within the the crime fraud exception. Uh, uh. You know, the the more striking element here, uh, one is that uh, the the investigators or prosecutors have satisfied a standard of probable cause to say that uh, Michael Cohen's uh, attorney material, as it relates to the services he provided uh, to Donald Trump, uh, may probably or, or, or uh, uh, contain evidence of a crime. Um, and so I think that sort of uh, we know that prosecutors would not be trying uh, to, to obtain a warrant based on anything like 
less than really an overwhelming showing, right? We can assume that it's much higher than that. So now what Trump's team is doing, and, and recall that it's essentially Donald Trump personal lawyers versus the Justice Department at that point, at this point. This is this is the setup we have. Uh, Trump's lawyers are trying to say that they should be able to get first uh, review of any material that was seized from Michael Cohen so they can say what is attorney-client privilege material. They want sort of the first bite and then the government gets the second bite. Uh, you know, that that doesn't ever happen. Uh, you know, ordinary uh, defendants don't get to see that. What you do is there is a, uh, a taint team, a group of prosecutors that are not related to the investigation that review this to determine whether or not there's privileged material. They hand over anything that they determine is not privileged, and then they don't have anything to do with the rest of the investigation uh, or prosecution in order to sort of, so there's no question about, well, whether or not you saw something and you said you weren't using it, but it actually sort of informed your thought. You know, what the president is essentially arguing at this point is that process of using a taint team, which is good enough for every other American citizen, every other federal criminal defendant, uh, is somehow not a sufficient protection for the president of the United States. You know, that would be a remarkable enough claim for sort of an ordinary person to make. The fact that the president and his lawyers are saying that uh, is sort of, it's even more remarkable. Um, you know, then, and then I think sort of in a higher level, I'd, I'd really commend a New Yorker article by Adam Davidson. Uh, I think he's called the, the end stage of the Trump presidency. And, and he sort of points to, uh, you know, this moment as being the moment that we're going to look back on as as the the point at which everything started to sort of fall apart for Trump. Um, it's It really is the first piece in that vein that has struck me as not just being wishful thinking. Um, we are uh, you know, the notion that there isn't a high probability, a high likelihood that the Trump organization engaged in, in serious criminal activity or, or was partnered with individuals that engaged in serious criminal activity, there's lots of red flags from the outside. And so I, I think that whatever your view about, you know, sort of the Russia collusion question, collusion question and whether or not there actually is going to be evidence there or, or prosecutable crime at the end of sort of whatever Mueller comes up with, the, the idea that there are financial crimes or, or crimes related to their corporate behavior seems much more likely, um, you know, and so uh, that is why I think Trump is is so panicked, uh, really, and is acting sort of like a like a cornered animal at this point. Um, yes, that, absolutely um, right. Um, we've got only about five minutes left, and I and I and I want to give everybody a, a chance to talk on this. I know, Ona, this has not been your primary focus, but I just want to go to you for a second and say. Do you have any comments on what Susan has just said? I think it's remarkable that um, we're talking about just this level of illegality kind of rife through the administration. And and it's just, it's kind of mind boggling that we're in this position. Um, I, I kind of have to pinch myself on a regular basis um, to, to uh, you know, imagine that that uh, even two years ago that we'd be in a situation like this with a president um, uh, facing these kinds of charges is just so striking. And I think, you know, to connect it to our last conversation, I think it shows why it's so important not to have a system where a single individual can make decisions about use of force, because there's definitely lots of speculation that part of the reason that Trump was so anxious to act in Syria was not only 
because he wanted to kind of carry out his uh, his threats or make good on his threats, but also that it was a kind of convenient moment to distract us all from his legal troubles. And and that's just such a terrible um, possibility and, and yet another reason why we really ought to have some legal limits, both domestic and international, on what a single person can do. And I think, you know, the Obama administration, as we've talked about, kind of trusted that whoever was going to be holding in the office of the presidency was going to be somebody like Obama, you know, somebody who had good sense, who was restrained, who was not going to undertake action that, uh, you know, that would not be in the best interest of the of of the United States um, and that would be carefully considered and run through all the legal traps. And and it doesn't seem that that's happening here. And so for me, just as I'm watching this unfold, and as you say, this is not something I've been centrally involved in, that's that's really been the take-home message for me, is that we have a president who um, who really seems pretty unhinged, and and yet he is um, at the... Um, at the helm of the world's most powerful military and seems to be almost utterly unfettered in his capacity to, to deploy that military. And that's what, for me, is really scary in all of this. Yeah, by the way, I, I use the term unhinged a lot, too, but I can't recall a time where he was ever actually uh, hinged. <laughs> um, yeah. um, There's that. I don't think I've ever referred to anybody as being hinged. Although, Rosa, you're, you're hinged. <laughs> I'm extremely hinged. <laughs> no, I, I agree completely with, with, with Ona and with Susan. Um, it, 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 every day, it's shocking all over again that we have a president who seems so uninterested in the ordinary constraints, not only of law, but of process and morality and appearance right i mean that and i think we not to mention not to mention hygiene not to mention hygiene we've discussed this before um it you know it really highlights the degree to which a lot of our assumptions about what we refer to as the rule of law uh really are not necessarily about you know hard law legal institutions but are about the voluntary shared acceptance of of norms of of you know, assumptions that says, you know, here is how presidents should behave, et cetera. And, and when that goes, when you've got somebody who just does not care, who's happy to have these, you know, demented tweets calling Comey a liar and a slime ball, and, you know, who doesn't seem to accept the idea that there should be any restraints on his behavior, uh, all hell breaks loose. The, the, the thing, however, that I find even more shocking and even more depressing than Trump's unhinged behavior is the fact that there there remains a, a solid 30 or so percent of the American electorate who apparently do not care at all and, in fact, like this kind of stuff. Well, yeah, right. And, mm. and that's, you know, something that will haunt us for a long time um, uh, to come, I think, particularly given the way our our, our, our system works and and tends to be giving uh, those, those people disproportionate power. From the point of view of the rest of the world, Kim, when I used to travel around a year ago, people would go, what's going on over there? Oh, my God. Um, you know, t- let's talk about Trump. And now I was in the Middle East last week. I'm in Asia now. And people just kind of roll their eyes and they're like, when will this be over? I, I'm just wondering what your take is as the last word on this part of the discussion. Yeah, I think it's a 
continued uh, state of uh, or, or you know continued confusion and and shock when people look at the U.S. and they do follow pretty closely. They may not know all the ups and downs of you know the the um, the investigation and what Comey said, but you know they they do follow closely and it's. It's a you know combination of confusion and uh, and shock. People are are horrified. Um, there's also a sense of familiarity if you come from certain developing countries that you look at President Trump and you think, oh look, America has got a leader who's just like ours here in the Arab world in you know certain countries that shall remain um, unnamed. Uh, but you know many countries you know have leaders that behave like Trump, and there's a sense among some people who um, dislike America, for example, that well you know your sense of superiority was just a fig leaf, and now you know you're just like us. And then you've got other people who are feeling very distressed because you know whatever America's failings. Um, over the last few decades, there was still a sense that it had uh, moral leadership in 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 the region or in in the world, and that if you were in a country where you would be oppressed by your leaders, you could to some extent look to the U.S. and hope that perhaps America would you know pressure your president or your prime minister to do better on human rights, to release some um, you know dissidents and and so on. And now there's just a sense that there's no point at all uh, looking towards the U.S. for anything. And that's quite depressing for those who, you know, have to put up with, um, you know, oppression, repression, etc. around the world. But perhaps it's also, I don't know, uh, an opportunity to um, to look more within ourselves and, 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 and try to change our own systems. Well, um, yeah, I'm, I'm getting I'm getting I'm getting similar reaction. And, I, and that's a very optimistic um, spin on it. We've come to the end of our time. Rose, I just want to ask you one last question. Are you proud of me for not having made a single joke about the Trump taint team? <laughs> yes, I'm very proud of you. Good job, David. Thank you. I just, you know, I just sometimes <laughs> I need positive, positive reinforcement. We, we try to save our listeners from unwanted visuals. Yeah, well, it's just Corey is not here for this episode, and of it just course. didn't even seem worth it. Comey did we'll refer get... to Trump as a stain, which which was a little closer than I wanted to to uh, the uh, visuals. Yeah, that's <laughs> yes. Well, later in the week we'll have Corey on, and Corey is the specialist in visuals, and we can all discuss this then. Um, but until then, I want to thank uh, Ona for joining us for the first time, Susan for coming back, Kim for coming back, Rosa for being here always. And uh, we want to encourage all of you out there in Deep State Radio Land to come back again soon, because every day, roughly on the hour, something unbelievable happens. Our brains explode. And every couple of days, we try to put it all into some kind of perspective. Um, so we'll do that again in a couple of days. Thanks, everybody. Deep State Radio is a production of the Deep State Radio Network, a division of TRG Interactive Media. Our podcast today was produced in cooperation with Goat Rodeo Productions and was supervised by Ian Enright. Join us again for another episode of Deep State Radio. If you don't, we know where to find you. <laughs>